reminder, Lord, of just how broken our world truly is, Lord. And Jesus, we thank you for the reminder that one day, Lord, one day you will come and you will rule and reign, Lord. And you'll solve all of these problems, Lord. You'll defeat sin and death, Lord. You'll defeat poverty and slums and all of this injustice, Lord. One day it will all be defeated, but it can only be defeated by you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you'd forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for serving the God of comfort and the God of ease, Lord. Help us, Lord. Help us to fulfill our calling of preaching the gospel, of making disciples, of sharing this cure for all the world, Lord. Help us, God. Help us to let go of this culture of America, Lord, and truly cling to our home, uh, which is builder and maker is God. And Lord, we just ask that you'd speak to us, Lord, that you'd soften our hearts. Lord, open our eyes to what you have to speak with us this morning. Lord, thank you for getting the team back here healthy and safely, Lord. And Lord, I do, I thank you for the incredible work that's taking place there in Elderate Kenya. May you continue to bless Pastor Peter and Pastor Josh and all the servants, all the laborers, all the family that we have there, Lord. Uh, Holy Spirit, we just ask that you'd fill us afresh and anew and minister to us this morning. We love you and we thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 9. We'll read verses 1 through 8 and see what the Lord has for us this morning. It says, so he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, They marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. It's been a few weeks, but if you remember at the end of Matthew chapter 8, Jesus dismissed the multitudes and he tells his disciples, let's go to the other side. On their way across the Sea of Galilee, they're in a storm. The disciples are losing their mind. They have no faith. They're filled with fear. Jesus calms the wind, calms the waves, calms the storm, and they arrive to the other side of the shore. They're in an area called Gadarenes. They're in Gadarenes. He meets two men that are demon-possessed. He frees them. The demons go into the swine. The swines run off the cliff. And yet the whole city asks Jesus to leave. And he turns around. And as we read in verse 1, he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. He left Capernaum. He went across the sea, saves two people, gets back in the boat, and goes back to Capernaum. Now consider how many hours of work that must have taken times 13, the 12 disciples plus Jesus. 
For some of us, we may have said, what a waste of time. What a waste of billable hours there. 13 men times all those hours, what was the point of all that? So important to be reminded of Luke chapter 15, verse 4, and the power of just one person being saved. Luke chapter 15, verse 4, Jesus says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be, met, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. The power of one person getting saved. Now a great question for us is, who doesn't need repentance? No one. All of us need repentance. The question for us is, are we stuck in our pride, thinking we're good enough and we don't need to repent? Or are we in touch with reality and humbled and have humility to the point that each of us say, Lord, I need to repent. I need to be right with you. But we see Jesus, he leaves Capernaum, goes to the other side. These two men get saved and he turns right back around and comes right back to Capernaum. There in Capernaum waiting for him, we read in verse 2 that they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Let's turn to Mark chapter 2 and we'll be looking at three of the Gospels. The three Gospels that have this narrative within them to get more details as to what was going on. Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, filled with the Holy Spirit, used with the, by the breath of God, he was a disciple of Peter. And here we get his perspective on what took place in Mark chapter 2. Verse 1, we read that it was in Capernaum where they went. And then in verse 2 it says, Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them. Not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him, because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. This is this famous story where if you grew up in church, maybe you can have flashbacks to your coloring book, right? Of this bed being lowered with four ropes and this man being lowered. The angel singing, oh, right, as the paralytic man is being dropped down. Luke chapter 5 verse 17 gives us some last details that we'll look at. And it tells us in Luke chapter 5, verse 17, that it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. So often, whenever we have our own plans made, we have our own schedule, we have our own plans, and something interferes with our plans and schedule. 
automatically we assume this is no one else than Satan himself getting in my way. And what we see if we pay attention to the Gospels is oftentimes when our plans have some difficulties, there's a God incident waiting to happen. Right? Imagine. I can't imagine as a teacher, Jesus is here giving a Bible study, giving a teaching, and they are interrupted by none other than a demolition crew in the ceiling of the building. I mean, I would hope and pray if someone begins to demolish a part of our roof and ceiling that the security guys would be out there on the roof saying, what in the world is going on here? Here we have every usher's worst nightmare, right? Talk about a huge interruption in the middle of a Bible study. And yet for many of us, because we are so accustomed to our perfect schedule, we could say, this is no one other than Satan here to buffet me and get in the way of my schedule. So often we should take a step back and say, all right, Lord, what do you have going on here? You're the God of the large, you're the God of the small. What is the purpose of this interruption? And we will see how this is a God incident. How Jesus doesn't see this interruption as something sinful or wrong or a distraction. Jesus sees this interruption as a great step of faith. We could be reminded of our own movement, how Pastor Chuck Smith was leading a small, really a denominational type church that he was taking through the Bible. And as these hippies started coming to church, they were coming barefoot with nasty feet, right? Toe jam, nasty toes and all this. And they were putting their toes in the communion holders within the pews. That's what they were doing. They were getting rid of their toe jam in the communion holes. That's what was going on. And some men in the church were getting bothered, saying that they were going to destroy the rug, they were going to destroy the pews, and destroy the church building. To which Chuck Smith said, then rip out the rug, let's get rid of the pews, because the people are more important than the stuff in the building. And sadly, many of us, after we've come to faith, any type of distraction... Any type of new person, any type of outsider that is begging and pleading, trying to get to Jesus, sometimes we just see it as a great distraction. May we have the heart of Jesus being able to see the faith of people desperately trying to come to Jesus. So they bring this man. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that they are friends. I kind of wonder if these four buddies just had a lot of faith. They see a paralyzed guy on the side of the ground and say, hey, let's grab him. What is he going to do about it, right? <laughs> let's grab him. Let's take him to Jesus. Jesus can heal him. Maybe it was a friend. Hey, buddy, you're coming with us, whether you like it or not. They bring this man, and when they first get there, the church is packed. The house is packed. Most Bible scholars believe that this is Peter's home. We know Peter's wife was there. His mother-in-law just got healed. Now, ladies, how would you like this to be your home? Your house is so full to the point that people can't get, even get inside the front door. And we, we saw while we were in Kenya just the importance of hospitality within the body of believers. When was the last time you had a stranger over your home? Someone else from church over your home and you were hospitable to them. Loving strangers, feeding them, giving them water, giving them food. In, in church leadership especially, it is one of the requirements to be in church leadership. And that's why it's so important. When Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, what happened in that woman, in that wife? 
What happened in that wife when she saw Jesus willing to come to her, her home and heal her own mom? We know she has no problems here as they're literally ripping up her roof and her ceiling. And then later on, she'll be crucified for her faith. Again, incredible things that what Jesus has done in her life and the life of her mother-in-law. But we're going a bit on a tangent. Back to verse 2, it says, Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now once again, I don't think that they tore up a perfect bed size or king size hole in the roof and lowered this man down. Some people at a campfire, they like these little rocking chairs that looks like a kangaroo pouch. I think that's sort of what they lowered him down in. They made a, a manhole size hole in the roof and they slowly lowered their friend in, whether he liked it or not, right? Maybe he was complaining and grumbling the whole time, but we'll see that he has a certain measure of faith. Because in verse 2, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now again, Jesus is giving a Bible study, a teaching. And then all of a sudden, they hear some walking on the roof. Some dust starts falling. If you've ever had construction in your home, it's always stressful. you got this dust that's getting everywhere. And in the middle of a Bible study, right, the dust, the popcorn ceiling starts opening. The dust starts getting everywhere. Jesus sort of backs up, and there's four heads looking down in the hole, right? And then slowly they lower their buddy down there. And when Jesus sees this, he sees what? Their great faith. He sees the great faith of the group. And consider, what kind of faith would it take for these four men to pick up and carry this paralyzed guy down the town? Seeing that the house was so full that they couldn't even get near the door, at what point would you have given up saying, today's is just not our day? Then they see that the house is full of, as we read in Luke 5, 17, the house is full of Pharisees and teachers of the law. These are probably the same men that condemned this poor paralyzed man and blamed his sickness on great sin in his life or in the life of his parents. And yet they don't give up. They continue to press on. Then the faith to continue to persevere and not give up to get on the roof. Now I always wonder, how did they get their friend on the roof, right? It's not going to get any worse than this. One, two, right? And he gets up there. I don't know. I don't know how they got him up there. But what type of perseverance did it take to not allow these different difficulties to get in their way of bringing their friend to Jesus? How little does it take for us to lose faith and trust, to get to church even, right? Our AC is broken in our car. Lord, today's not the day. You just know it. I can't make it there with no AC in the car, Lord. Lord, there's rain in Miami. I can't, I can't drive in the rain. I can't make it to church. I know Noah in the rain. I know Jesus calmed the rain. I know the flood. But Lord, I, it's, it's just not safe. It's not safe to drive in the rain. How little does it take for us to lose perseverance and faith in coming to Jesus or coming to church or bringing loved ones to church? We see the great faith of these men. And the question for us this morning is... Is faith visible? Can you see faith? You guys are like the 9 a.m. You don't want to say yes or no. You're not sure what the right answer is. We'll go to James chapter 2. Absolutely. Faith 
is visible. It is something you can see. James chapter 2, verse 17. We see the great faith of these men because their faith had action. Their faith had works. Their faith had perseverance. James chapter 2, verse 17 says, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God and you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? These four men had great faith because they persevered and they had work and sweat attached to their faith and believe that Jesus could heal their friend. And we need that. Our faith is not supposed to just be words, but actions attached to it. Oftentimes we'll tell someone, don't, don't just tell me how much you love me. Show me how much you love me. Don't just tell me about it. Show me it. Let me see the work. And the same is true with us and our faith towards Jesus Christ. Show him that you truly trust him and believe in him. One commentator, Jerry Vines, he gives four names to the four friends. He says, first, you have frank faith. He believed Jesus Christ could heal his paralyzed friend. And then you have Harry Hope. He believed Jesus would heal his paralyzed friend. Next, you have Larry Love, who had such concern for his paralyzed friend that he wanted and desired to bring him to Jesus Christ. And finally, you have Daniel Determination. A man who was determined that no matter what, he would get his friend to meet Jesus Christ. You see, the faith of these four men stirred up and helped the faith of their broken friend. And today, we need men and women of faith, hope, and determination. We need believers to possess perseverance as we once did. We need this once again. We need men and women who are fueled by faith and love and hope and determination to bring their loved ones, their friends, their co-workers, their family members to the feet of Jesus Christ. Because no one but Jesus Christ can heal them of their greatest need. Some questions that we need to ask ourselves. Four important questions. Number one, do we bring our own friends to Jesus Christ? What was the last friend that you brought to Jesus Christ? Sometimes we'll take them to a specific bank or a certain YouTube channel, a certain website, maybe a certain app, a certain book, and we'll bring our friends to these other things that can help them in small areas of our lives. But do we bring our own friends to Jesus Christ? Next question, what about our friends? Do our friends bring us to Jesus Christ or are our friends holding us back from Jesus Christ? Giving us excuses, giving us reasons, telling us we don't really need to come to him as desperately as we need to come to him. Third question, do we stir up and help the faith of others? 
Does our lifestyle, do our words, do our words encourage and help and stir up the faith in others? Or are we that spiritual Eeyore sucking the faith and life out of our friends and loved ones? And finally, what about our friends? Do our friends stir up and help our faith? Instead of telling us, ah, it's okay, you deserve this day, you deserve this, that, or the third, are your friends stirring you up and helping your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Proverbs chapter 17, verse 22 says the following, A merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. Which believer are you? Are you that friend that like good medicine, whenever someone comes in contact with you, you bring joy to, your, to their heart? You fuel their faith? You fuel their trust and encouragement in Jesus Christ? Or are you that broken spirit that the moment anyone else comes in contact with you, you are so bitter and dry that you dry up their very bones? It can happen to us. A.W. Tozer, he calls it the accountant in the boardroom. The accountant in the boardroom. And you have men and women that want to take great steps of faith for the Lord. And there are some believers that think it's their spiritual gift to just tell you how impossible it is to do it. Moses is there, two million slaves, Pharaoh's army's coming. And the accountant comes to tell Moses, you might as well give up. Just write the peace treaty. Ask for forgiveness instead of waiting for God to do his thing. When you come into a room, do you strengthen your believers? Or do you just create a void of faith and trust and excitement and joy in Jesus Christ? Let's turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 3. And there's so much here for us to have vicarious faith. To have a faith that strengthens our brothers and would bring our brothers and sisters to the feet of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. There's a warning here. It tells us, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another, how often? Daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The opposite of faith is fear. It's unbelief, and the nation of Israel missed out on going into the promised land because they allowed an evil heart of unbelief to rule and reign in their heart, and it caused them to depart from the living God. That's why we need to stir one another up, encourage one another to have faith in the Lord and to seek forgiveness while it is called today. Today is that day of salvation. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. And we'll see the author of Hebrews, more than likely Paul. He's going to double down on this idea. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. He says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider one another in order to stir one another up to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We need to hold fast to our confession, hold fast to our hope because Jesus is faithful. And then our role as a body of believers is to stir one another up. Stir one another up. Not tear one another down. Stir one another up. I always joke about it. Us as Hispanics, our spiritual gift is sarcasm and tearing each other down. But biblically, we're to stir one another up. We're to encourage love and good works. And then here in verse 25, it tells us not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Coming back from Kenya, just there are a lot of good spiritual lessons. But one of the biggest ones to me was the importance of church. Just the importance of church. We were there three days before the group, and there's just a lot of spiritual warfare going on. And there was just one night, I was just, why am I here? Lord, why am I here? I feel so empty. I feel so void. Lord, what is going on? Spiritual darkness going on called my wife, I prayed with her, and then the next morning, a Sunday morning, we get to the church, and just being in the church during sound check, started crying, saying, Lord, this is why I'm here. This is home. There's peace here. Your presence is here. Your people is here. And then afterwards, it just dawned on me. I don't know how other believers lie to themselves saying they don't need church on a weekly basis. I don't know how you guys do it. I cannot do it. I could not survive being weeks away from the body of believers because it is a lifeline for us. And we've allowed the lies of America to creep into our lives. The lives that you go to church, I go to church too. It's just out on the boat with the fish. And that's my church on Sundays. You do church at church, I do church at the CrossFit gym. We have church every Sunday morning. We work out for three hours and we have church. You have your church, I have my church. It's on the beach, pina coladas, worship music. That's my church. And we've allowed the lies of our world to dictate our obedience to Jesus Christ and his word. He tells us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. How dare we allow the lies of the enemy to creep in and tell us, you know what? It doesn't matter if I don't go to church. How can we allow that? We need it because this is how we stir one another up to love and good works. The other danger for many of us is we run out of church before there's any stirring going on. Like the Looney Tunes, the moment Zach says amen, it's just a cloud of dust, right? And then the parking lot guys, they just see someone running. They pull out binoculars and they just see someone running to their car because they don't stay and wait to fellowship with a body of believers. Imagine hosting Thanksgiving dinner in your home and your family members, they just run in, they eat, and they run out. You wouldn't like that. I know my mom wouldn't like that. We'd get in trouble if we did that. How much more do we need to be in the household of God? I'm reminded of the psalmist. He starts talking about how the evil, they, they just keep getting away with it. The evil, they rule, they reign. Lord, what is going on? And then he says, but then I went into the house of the Lord. And I remembered their end. 
Family, it is so important for us. If we're going to stir one another up towards love, towards faith, towards good works, we need to be obedient and biblical as believers, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, is our world getting better or worse? Is Jesus coming sooner, or is he going to delay his return? How much more do we need a healthy dose of being in the church, reading God's word, feeding God's word, and encouraging one another? We have that vicarious faith that strengthens one another. One last verse on this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11 says, Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. We need to comfort one another. We need to build up one another, and that doesn't happen through a screen. Church, it is a place where God's people gather, where his word is being taught consistently, where there's communion happening consistently, where there's prayer happening consistently, the breaking of bread together consistently, and there's also church government in place. This is what makes a church. And this vicarious faith needs to be in us and in our loved ones. We know that Abraham's vicarious faith saved Lot and his family. We know that Moses' vicarious faith saved the nation of Israel from getting completely wiped out by the Lord. And the vicarious faith of these four men is going to save their paralyzed friend. We need to possess vicarious faith through our actions, but also through our intercessory prayer for one another. There are many of you that are here because of the vicarious faith of a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister that didn't give up on you, but continue to ask you to come to church, continue to bring you to the feet of Jesus Christ, interceding for you in heaven. May our faith do good works and strengthen our brothers and sisters around us instead of drying up their bones and sucking the faith out of them. May we pay attention to our hearts, not allowing unbelief to creep in and cause us to slowly depart from the living God. And instead, exhort one another daily, as God's word tells us. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, gathering together consistently in order to stir up love and good works with one another, constantly comforting and building up the church of Jesus Christ. We need more Jonathans and his armor bearer. Jonathan says, hey man, what do you think? I think God, if he wants to, we can go into that enemy barrack and we could win. What did his armor bearer say? We? What do you mean we, bro? I don't speak French. Do you got a frog in your pocket? Right? What do you mean we? Now he says, hey, if it's in your heart, let's go do it. Let's go see God is able to save by many or by few. And we need this type of faith and perseverance in our household today. Back to Matthew chapter 9. Jesus sees the faith of this group. No doubt the faith of these four men, but also the faith in the paralytic. If not, he wouldn't have been able to tell him, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Other translations put it this way. Take courage, son. Take heart, my son. Take courage, my child. Like a good doctor seeing the sad countenance of a patient 
or a parent seeing a child beginning to lose hope, thinking they're going to be sick forever, Jesus encourages this man, calling him son, be of good cheer. And what is the first need that Jesus addresses here? His sins. He says, your sins are forgiven you. Perhaps the four friends are looking down saying, Lord, forget the sins. Look at his legs. Look at his legs. What are you talking about sins? We didn't lower him down here. A sinful guy can walk around town. Lord, we lowered him down because he's paralyzed. But Jesus is pointing out that our first and greatest need is always the spiritual need of being right before God. Many people come to Jesus for selfish reasons. Many people come to Jesus asking him to fix a certain problem or difficulty that perhaps they've been born with, or perhaps it is the sinful consequence for their bad decision making. Yet our greatest need is always the spiritual need. What was the purpose of Jesus coming into this world? Was it to heal people only so that they would die later on in their sin? Was it to make people rich only to be spiritually bankrupt for the rest of eternity? Was it to make mankind as comfortable as possible until they burn in hell? Not at all. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21, the angel says, She will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Their sins. This is why Jesus has come. He's come to save us from ourselves and from hell for all of eternity. He has not come just to make us as comfortable as possible in this life. Perhaps you're here this afternoon because you want Jesus to fix your problem. You've come here only so that he would address a specific need. But friend, I tell you, Jesus will not fix your problems or your consequences until you have come to him to forgive you of your sins and of your sinful heart and until he is Lord of all of your life. He's not going to even go there. And even afterwards, he's going to give you an answer to your prayer. It just might not be an answer you want to hear. Right? As kids, there's only one answer to a question, and it's yes. No is not an answer. That's not okay, right? Wait is not an answer. But biblically, these are all God answering our prayers. Sometimes it's no. Sometimes it's wait. Sometimes it's have patience. All of us have fallen short of the standard and purpose that God has for our lives. We've departed from God and there is nothing more needful. There is nothing that will bring us more cheer and more courage than being forgiven of our sins and being cleansed so that we can be just and welcomed into the presence of God. Not even being healed from being paralyzed. Not winning the lottery, not having the perfect car, perfect job, perfect home. It is a spiritual need that all of us have. Let's turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 verse 1. A psalm of David, a contemplation. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, 
My bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the draught of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. This is David, king of Israel, most powerful man of Israel. And yet what he's saying, he's not blessed he who is richest or he who is most powerful. No, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. In the middle there, we see what most of us do. We stay quiet instead of being biblical and asking forgiveness of our sins to the Lord first and foremost and to our brother or sisters who we've sinned against. Family, our greatest need is always dealing with our sin. It's our spiritual need. And oftentimes we get away from this. We think that, man, if only someone has the right job, If only someone has the right house. If only they get the right degree, then their life will get in order. But it's always a spiritual need first and foremost. Uh, Imagine if you would, if there'd be a great river and at the spring, at the mouth of the river, there's sewage coming out. It's corrupt at the source. Would you begin a beach cleanup project 10 miles down the river? Would you try to work on it there? Yet what we'd allow to creep into the church is, hey, you just got to go to a psychiatrist. You just got to go to a psychologist. You just got to read this self-help book. You just got to get more, some more self-discipline, and then you'll be able to fix yourself. No, we need to go to the source. The source itself is corrupt. That's why as a church body, as a believer, the first thing we should be seeking is helping people's spiritual state. Because the physical needs, they are truly unquenchable. That was one of the things we saw in Kenya. The physical needs of people, there's no way to address all of them. We worked at the Abayana Orphanage. Then we worked at a school. There was 150 kids at the school. So we went out. We bought 150 toys. In Kenya, you're like buying all the toys in the store at once. So we have 150 toys. We're ready. We start the VBS. And you're there. There's kids without shoes. There's kids with their clothes all torn up. There's five-year-olds there carrying their four-month-old little brother or little sister. They're in school, and we're doing the VBS. They're all excited. But then you look outside at the fence, and there's other kids from the town looking at what's going on. And for the first time in my whole life, I saw kids sneaking into school. Never seen this before in my life. These kids would slowly but surely, five of them sneak in. Another five of them sneak in. So we had 150. We bought 150 toys, but then another 50 kids sneak in. God multiplies the toys. We have just enough for the the school. The next day, we hear there's 150 kids. So we show up. I'm not that good with numbers, but I start looking at all the kids. There's way more than 150 kids here. What's going on? We talk to the principal. Oh, yeah, we have two schools. We just combined both of them, and we brought all the kids. There's 250 kids. Okay. We got to go to another store and buy more toys because we only bought 150. So once again, we buy more toys. We have 275 toys. Once again, kids start sneaking into school. We're there in the slums. You could smell the open sewage. And there's kids sneaking into the school. And you're handing out toys. And it gets hard because you run out of toys. But the reason why we are there is not physical needs. It's not toys, even though I love to give them all toys and new clothes. We are there to address the spiritual need and the spiritual drought. Because if that's addressed, then God can fix all of the rest. 
That's why it's so important for us to focus on the main thing, which is our sin and our brokenness from fellowship with God. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Micah chapter 7, verse 18 and 19, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and he will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Some people think there's two gods, Old Testament and New Testament. Old Testament's a God of wrath. Here in Micah, we see our God, he delights to show mercy. He wants to have compassion on us. He wants to subdue our iniquities and cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. One last scripture on this, Romans chapter 4 verse 7 says, Blessed are those who lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Family, our greatest need is our sinful state. And we're sinful, we are rotten to the core. Matthew Poole, he gives six reasons why Jesus dealt with this man's sins first and then his paralyzed state second. Number one, because sin is the root from which all evil comes. Reason number two, to show that forgiveness is more important than bodily healing. Number three, to show that the most important thing Jesus came to do was to deal with sin. Number four, to show that when a man's sins are forgiven, he becomes a son of God. Reason number five, to show that the response to faith is forgiveness of sin. And finally, point number six, to begin an important conversation with the scribes and with the Pharisees. Back in Matthew chapter 9, verse 3, we begin to see this conversation, although it's very interesting because the only one speaking here in this whole story is Jesus. Nobody else is speaking. Jesus is going to have a conversation with these scribes on what they're thinking, and he's going to answer them out loud to what they're thinking. Matthew chapter 9, Verse 3, it says, And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? The word man here is, in, is italicized. Whenever you see that in your Bible, it's because that word is not in the original Greek. And we've put in that word so it makes more sense. But Charles Spurgeon, he says, they did not know what to call him, even in their own hearts. They meant this, this upstart, this nobody, this strange being blasphemes. They didn't even know what to call him. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Again, you would think Jesus knowing their very thoughts, the very argument that's happening in their mind, would prove his lordship and power. That he, in fact, was God sent to them to forgive them of their sins. 
But sadly, the Pharisees just continued to harden their hearts. Then he says in verse 6, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Jesus uses one of his favorite terms for himself, Son of Man. And we looked at Luke 5.17 that this house is filled with Pharisees and teachers of the law. So they should know better. They should know Son of Man is connected to Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. That the prophet Daniel had a night vision and he says, Behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. The Pharisees and teachers of the law, they knew better. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying, and yet they continued to harden their hearts. So Jesus then brings about this miracle, not to gain an audience, not to gain a bigger crowd, but to reveal himself to those with open hearts that he was in fact God himself, that he was the Messiah he was the chosen one. He was the one who would free men from their sins and one day return to rule and reign over this earth. David Brown, he says, Is it easier to command away disease than to bid away sin? If then I do the one which you can see, know thus that I have done the other which you cannot see. Jesus has come to forgive us of our sins. There may have been many people throughout our lives and throughout humanity promising freedom from sin. Many different religions, many false gospels saying, hey, I can give you freedom from sin. I can forgive you of your sins. But there are not many who also say to a paralyzed man, rise up, take up your bed and walk. Go home. Go to your house. Only Jesus can say this. Because only Jesus can free us of our sins. Isaiah 35, verse 3 through 6, Isaiah prophesying about Jesus one day coming, he says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, Be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will sing, for the waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The Pharisees knew all these verses, and yet they hardened their hearts all the more. Psalm 103 verse 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, and who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed." Only Jesus can forgive us of our sins because only Jesus can heal a paralyzed man and have him get healed and walk home the very same moment. Back in Matthew chapter 9, verse 7, 
It tells us he arose and departed to his house. He obeys the words of Jesus right away. In Mark chapter 2, verse 12, one of Mark's favorite words is immediately. And he says, immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Again, the four buddies are still up in the ceiling, looking down at what's happening. And you got to imagine, this huge crowd that prevented this man from getting in, after seeing what just took place, they're all just moving out of the way, right? They're letting him just split through the crowd and walk on out. The power of Jesus Christ, years of being paralyzed, years of atrophy, years of bed sores, years of pressure ulcers, years of tightened tendons and physical problems just compounding, and yet in an instant, he is healed immediately. No hours of surgery, no physical therapy. Behold the power of our God and Jesus Christ sent to forgive us of all of our sins. One of every parent's favorite verses, right? Get up and make your bed. (laughs) Get up and make your bed and then go home. His friend's still on the roof. He rolls up his bed and he just walks on out of there. Adam Clark, he says, A man gives proof of his conversion from sin to God who imitates this paralytic person. He who does not rise and stand upright, but either continues groveling on in the earth or falls back as soon as he got up, is not yet cured of his spiritual palsy. Maybe that's you here this afternoon. You think you're saved. You've prayed to be saved, you've said it out loud, you answered an altar call, but you're still groveling in sin and in the flesh. This morning, Jesus wants you to be obedient. Ask for forgiveness. Don't be like David in the middle there where he says he kept his mouth shut and he felt the pressure of God upon his life. No, open your mouth and seek forgiveness and restoration with him. Read Romans 6 and say, this is me. I am under new ownership. I don't have to sin. My life should not be about sinning. All over the New Testament, especially 1st and 2nd Corinthians, if your life is marked by habitual sin, God's Word says you're not saved. God's Word says you're not entering the kingdom of heaven if your life is about habitual sin. Get up. He wants to heal you. He wants to cure you of your spiritual palsy. And then Jesus commands him to go to his house. Go to his house. He did the same thing with one of the men from the gatherings. He said, can I come with you? Can I join the ministry? He says, no. Go home. Tell your loved ones. Tell those in your home about what's been going on. In Luke chapter 5 verse 25, it says, he departed to his own house glorifying God. Oh, to hear the worship of this man on the way home. Imagine what he was saying. Imagine what he was declaring to the Lord. Charles Spurgeon says, he did not go to the temple with the sacraments, nor to the theater with the men of this world. He went to his home. A man's restoration by grace is best seen in his own house. I love this quote so much because you can be phony here at church. You can act like you're all holy here at church, but the moment you get home, reality settles in. 
And for you parents here, know that your kids are just saying whatever's going on at home, right? Can you pray for my mom and dad? They're always screaming at each other. Can you pray for my grandma? She cusses at us, right? All of these prayer requests, they pop up in the kids' ministry. And true salvation, true restoration, it's not shown at church. It's shown in your own home. What does your spouse think about you? Does, does your spouse believe you're actually saved, right? Do your kids believe that you're saved? Our true restoration is shown in our own household. Verse 8, Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. So family, who are you this morning? What happens when you hear the words of Jesus Christ? Which immediately are you? Do we, are we the immediately of the Pharisees? We hear the words of Jesus Christ and we just immediately harden our heart and say why that can't take place? Why, that's not, that, why that doesn't apply to me? Or are we like the paralyzed man that when Jesus speaks into our lives, immediately we obey him? Immediately we trust him and his word. The multitudes, they see it and they marvel and they glorify God. I love it. Whenever Jesus does a miracle, the glory goes to God the Father. Jesus isn't a rock star. He's not trying to build an empire. He's giving all the glory to the Lord. And each of us have seen the mighty work of God at one point or another in our lives. Every single one of us. I have no doubt. Perhaps your life has been completely changed in the past. Perhaps an answer to prayer for a sick son, a sick daughter, a sick family member. What has happened? What effect has it had on your heart? Or are we hardening our hearts even more? He answered that prayer in the past. He did that miracle in the past. But now we've hardened our hearts. John Butler, one last quote here. He says, The proof of the deity of Christ was in the healing of that man. It was irrefutable proof. For the critics could not deny his miracle. The miracle manifested the forgiveness of the man's sins. But the critics still did not believe in Christ. Evidence does not always end unbelief. Evidence shames unbelief, but does not always stop unbelief. That shows just how belligerent unbelief really is. So for us today, may we trust in our faithful God. May we be the men and women that Jesus looks and marvels at their faith instead of being like the believers, like the Israelites that we read about in Hebrews chapter 3 that have the evil heart of unbelief, causing them to walk away from the living God. So are we marveling and glorifying God? Do we see his miracle in our life, how he saved us, how he's freed us, and everyone can hear us glorifying him and worshiping him? Or are we unwilling to let go of our evil heart of unbelief, which has led us to depart from the living God? Are we making excuses, saying God does not possess the power to free me from this specific sin? I have to hold on to it. He's just not powerful enough. Or are we just too much in love with our own sin that we really don't want forgiveness from our sins? We just want to stay there, even if it costs us fellowship with God. 
May we not only be moved by our emotions as to what God has worked in our lives or the lives of our loved ones, but may we abandon our sin and cling to the one who has forgiven us of our iniquity. May we be like the paralyzed man that was once spiritually paralyzed, but now we're alive and now we're free. We're not clinging to the past. We're not clinging to our spiritual brokenness today. And sadly, that's what a lot of believers want to do. They just don't want to let go of their spiritual brokenness. They just want to stay in the same place. They think, ah, God can't really change this. I'm just going to be in the same place forever. You got to let go of that. You got to trust in the word of God, how he says, today. Today, if you'll hear his voice, if you won't harden your heart, today is that day of salvation. So, hey, worship team, if you guys can come up. And hey, let's all stand, we'll pray, and then we'll close in song. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your mighty, mighty word, Lord. We thank you that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Lord, for whoever was brought here by that faithful friend, Lord, we pray that you'd be working in their hearts, Lord. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word that each of us are fearfully and wonderfully made, Lord. Each of us were knit in our mother's womb, Lord, before we even realized what happened, Lord. Before the foundations of the world, Jesus, how you decided to die for our sins. While we were still enemies, how you died for us. So, Lord, I pray that you'd increase our faith, Lord. Increase our faith to let go of our fears, to let go of our hang-ups, and to cling to you and to your word. Lord, help us to have that perseverance Help us to have that faith. Help us, Lord, to possess that faith, knowing that without faith, it is impossible to please you. So, Lord, we just love you for your word. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of the body of believers, the gift of the church, Lord. And, Lord, whatever business we have to do, Lord, whoever we have to pray with, whoever we have to talk with, Lord, help us not just harden our hearts even more, Lord, but just bring them before you. So we just love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.